that now I'm doing what I always do in my adult Sunday school class, which is why we've never finished a lesson in 20 years. I want to do a message on what we mean when we say hallelujah. Because it's not just like, oh boy, or hallelujah, it's raining men. Or it, it's, it's, uh... yeah, way cooler than you ever thought. There's a, there's a real uh, important theme around that word hallelujah. And one day we're going to study it. Great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. Remember we talked about Babylon. It's, it's pictured as a woman, a, a prostitute. It's pictured as a, as a people. It's pictured as a sea. It's pictured as all sorts of things. But the idea of Babylon is an end-time attempt to lure people away from commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ. So don't think of just like a woman when you read that, okay? His judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. An interesting phrase. Once more they cry out. He hears it again. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So whatever kind of fire of judgment this is, it's not something that consumes. It's something that just continually judges. Verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Imagine this. Like, Like the roar of many waters. You ever stood right at the edge of Niagara Falls type of thing? Like the sound of many peals of thunder. There's this huge crowd crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. You get the impression John is just like stunned. And the angel has to say, yeah, get, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the revelation, this whole book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw that in the opening chapter. 11. And then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his 
eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has written, a name written, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's interesting. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And you think of, you think of John's words, eh? In the beginning was the Word, and then the Word was God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. It's a picture. It's not actual. You're not going to see horses. At least that's my opinion. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. You're probably not going to see a human being with a sword. It's a vision. A sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will Tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The seven bowls of the wrath of God poured out at the very end. We've talked about that week after week. 16. On his robe and on his thigh was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun... And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is gruesome kind of a picture. And I saw the beast. We've studied that before. And the kings of the earth. We've talked about them before. With their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And the two were thrown alive, alive into the lake that burns with sulfur. This is the one where he saw the smoke going up forever and ever and ever. 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So this is this picture that he sees. As you reach chapter 17, about chapter 17 in the book of Revelation, you you start to really start uh, seeing the wrap-up of John's Visions, John's revelation. And if you remember at that point in our studies, I said that as John wraps this up, you're going to see, I think very intentionally, he does these parallel contrasts in these last, these last chapters. The last six chapters deal with two women, the great harlot, Babylon, the bride of Christ, two cities, Babylon, the New Jerusalem, two feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this horrifying supper of God, the birds of the air that we're going to study tonight. I mean, we've already seen the end depicted several times in the book of Revelation. That's because the seven seals take us right to the end. The seven trumpets take us right to the end. And the seven bulls take us right to the end. So we've actually seen the end portrayed at least three times already in the book of Revelation. Though this is where it gets expanded. This is where it's most talked about in the most detail. The second coming of Jesus as it relates to the final judgment is 
is sort of zeroed in on as we talk about the seven bowls of God's wrath. Chapter 17, it held forth the prediction of the fall of Babylon. Chapter 18 gave more of the details. And you remember these three great agencies. I've talked about them. Used by the great dragon, Satan, portrayed in Revelation 12. And the three agencies are the beast. That's the devil's political activist organizer, the Antichrist. The false prophet, representing the religious component of the persecution of Jesus Christ and those who are committed to him exclusively. And then Babylon, representing the seductive pull of the world to draw people away from pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And so with the beginning of chapter 19, here we are. You witness another starking contrast. Chapter 18 ends with this rather dismal lament. The merchants of the earth, the kings of the earth... They're they're mourning the fall of Babylon the Great. And that was in verses 22 and 23 of Revelation 18. And and we saw this, this picture almost like a ghost town. The sounds of harpists and of musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride. Parties, weddings, receptions. Did you see the one on TV apparently this past weekend? No more. Gone. All the pomp, all the ceremony, all the glitter. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth... And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. It's, it's this picture of life gone, the party over, a funeral dirge, uh, replacing the sound of the stock market and the cash register. You see where the contrast with the opening verses of chapter 19 are so striking. Okay, so point number one. You have the celebration of heaven over the triumphant justice of God Almighty. It's in the first six verses. And John, he he hears what seems to be a loud voice crying out, Hallelujah. I'm just skipping along here. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. His judgments are true and just. He's judged the prostitute who corrupted the earth, has avenged the blood of his servants. Remember, the souls underneath the altar. How long, O Lord, how long before you avenge? And they cry out again, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 24 elders, amen, hallelujah. And then from the throne, a voice, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of waters, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. And you see this contrast between the destruction of Babylon, no more music, no more singing, no more celebration. The, the, what looked like a party that couldn't be stopped. And all the life gone out of it. And then suddenly this, this great celebration. 
That last phrase especially. Hallelujah, verse 6. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It's, it's almost a shout of surprise because, you know, you, you start reading Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Those are dark passages and, and, it, and it doesn't look like God reigned at all. In the last couple of visions that John was seeing. And so as the followers of the beast and Babylon mourn, heaven is pictured in this explosive song of praise, 19.1. Hallelujah. Salvation and power and glory. Oh, it's a fresh realization. They belong. They belong to God. They've been manifested. The prayers of the suffering saints and those martyred, those prayers have been answered. It's, it's not just like now. What we do is we know. We know God is faithful. We trust he is faithful to his promise and we stand on that by faith. This is different. This is, this is seeing. This is seeing the promise of God manifested. This is seeing it wrapped up. All the things we've said were true. All the things we've trusted in. All the things we've believed and stand on because they're God's word. Now you can see the excitement. It's happening. The joy of seeing God's faithfulness finally prevail over what seemed to be impossible odds. Verse 3, his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, has avenged her blood on his servants. You, you look around you, I, I don't know what bugs you the most. You look at our own province, you look at our country, you look at the world globally, and you think, can, can, we, can we get more morally messed up? Like, is it even possible to get more morally messed up than we are now? And, and people seem to lack understanding. And people, people, people can't distinguish between right and wrong. And they're proud of the things that they should be ashamed of, just like Paul said. And then, and then you see someone against all these odds. Oh, his judgments are true and just. There's another important thought unfolded here. Those around the throne of God have not lost the capacity to rejoice at the justice of God. This is confusing to a lot of people. You look at those words in verses 3 and 4. The righteous crying out. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Does that trouble you? Does it trouble you that these righteous people are actually rejoicing when they see God's judgment on the wicked? It used to me, when I read the book of Revelation, you'd come to these parts and you'd see heaven celebrating with these rather gruesome images. I know they're just visions, but they're not portraying something pleasant, for sure. As Here's what I see happening. As our world gets increasingly accustomed to um, the increasing numbness of immorality and relativism, 
we are gradually losing our capacity to rejoice over any manifestation of justice anymore. In our blind scramble for tolerance, we, we tend to embrace almost any form of wickedness as a valid form of self-expression. It's very common. The kings and the merchants of the earth, they mourn over the judgment of Babylon. They're losing money and influence and control and power and affluence. But the pure in heaven rejoice at this judgment as a revelation of God's justice. Here's what, here's, what, here's what happens. As the end comes, as the end comes, we, John says, we will be like him. We will see him just as he is. We will be like him. And we will finally be able to see sin completely in its relationship to God. In a way that we, we try to now... But it's hard for us. We will, we will see all wickedness and sin as, as distinctly anti-God. In a way that we just try to see it now. And it will give us joy in seeing it finally judged. The kingdom of God cannot come while the enemies of God triumph. The enemies must be judged First, And it's because the creatures around the throne know better than anyone else the glories of the kingdom yet to be finally manifested that they actually celebrate and rejoice as smoke rises from the burning rubble of Babylon. Smoke rises from Babylon because she's been laid waste by God's judging fire. 18.8 For this reason her plagues will come in a single day death and mourning and famine she will be burned with fire, for almighty is the Lord God who has judged her. I think even as Christians, we find those words challenging to our sensitivities. Because in this age, we, uh, we rejoice most and we celebrate most in God's love in this age of grace. You see, but in the age to come... As this age of grace comes to a close with the pouring out of God's judgment, God's justice will be manifested and praised then as his mercy and grace to people like us is celebrated now. Let me just say this one more time. It's hard for us to imagine what the full effect of our completed redemption will mean for our future moral judgments. They will be different from what they are now. We can only read prophetically what our hearts will feel when the ultimate measure, the ultimate measure of virtue then will be righteousness, not tolerance. The ultimate virtue in this age, by this world, this global community, the ultimate virtue is tolerance. And it's hard for us to imagine when the ultimate virtue will no longer be tolerance, but it will be 
righteousness. Godliness, righteousness, holiness will be praised then as tolerance is praised now. And, you know, you and I are not quite ready for the change that's going to come in our moral reconciliations. Two, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're over halfway done. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me tell you one of the most frustrating quirks of New Testament prophecy. It's this, that the marriage supper of the Lamb is only announced in John's vision. And you can comb through the whole book of Revelation. It's prophesied, it's predicted, and nowhere is it described. We don't know anything about it. This is the reason behind a lot of uh, wild and sometimes weird theories about it. But the truth is, John doesn't tell us, doesn't tell us where this banquet is, specifically. Doesn't tell us exactly when it takes place, except at the end. A lot of descriptions of the end of the age in Revelation, we've seen several of them, and a lot of them leave it out altogether. We just don't know very much about it. Here's what we do know. We do know that it pictures this beautiful time of uh, reunion... And celebration with Jesus Christ and those who are already in his kingdom. I was sitting this afternoon, just before we leave the house, I usually go over this again and think about it again. And I was thinking in the 35 years that I've been here, if you took all, all the people, all of them, who have passed away since 1982 in this church they would fill up these two sections, a bigger crowd than you would have here tonight. And I started to see face after face after face after face after face. And I don't know an awful lot about the marriage supper of the Lamb because the Bible doesn't say, but I, but I do know if, if you could somehow go into a large auditorium, into the gym... And Jesus was there physically present. And every Christian you have ever known and loved was there and you could talk to them. How long do you think it would take to get everybody out of the building? Like, like what a thing that's going to be. What a thing that's going to be. We'll be so overwhelmed. People, people always you know, say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about, you know, and you'll get to heaven and it's never going to enter your head. 
You're just going to be on your knees in awe at everything. So we do know there's reunion. We do know there's celebration. Jesus actually gave these little tiny hints. He talked about it. Matthew 8, 11. Not a lot of detail. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine an egg salad sandwich with Jacob? Matthew 26, 29. Every time we gather around the communion table, we don't know a lot, but Jesus talks to the, that group that he has with him there. The Last Supper is what we call it, the Passover. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's all we know. So two things stand out about this future time of reunion and celebration, and I'll wrap up with them. A, only those who respond to the invitation can participate. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So here's what we know. You, you can't earn entrance to this supper. It's a response to a gracious invitation. Like it's not for people who qualify. And yet, B, here's the second thing. There's still an element of, of preparation involved in being ready for this supper. Verse 7 of 19, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And you get this wonderful balanced picture here. You can't earn entrance, but you need to be ready. You can't qualify, but you need to be prepared. And so we learn... We learn that responding to this invitation includes more than a lot of people think. The bride has made herself ready. Here's the way the Apostle Paul said the same thing. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved. So he's writing to Christians. Since we have these promises, it's grace, it's promised. Here's the Making ourselves ready. Let us cleanse. Let us cleanse ourselves. That phrase ought to jump out at you. You ought to think that's the strangest phrase in your testament. Cleanse ourselves. Is that what we believe? We sang it this morning. What can wash away my sin? How are we cleansed? Well, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What's this? Let us cleanse ourselves. From every defilement of body and spirit, bringing, bringing, here it is, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You can come as you are. You can't remain as you are. Grace transforms. It, it, it changes. It renews. Apostle John says the same thing. First John 3, 2, and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And everyone said, praise God. 
And, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Okay, so you can read that and think, well, then it's just, it's automatic. We're God's children. Jesus will come and we're going to be just like him. Wonderful. What does that understanding, what does that appreciation do to a person? Like, if you really believe that, how does it affect you? And everyone who thus hopes in him, you have this hope of grace, free grace, righteousness through Christ. Everyone who has that hope, and it's just like Paul talks about cleansing himself. He says, purifies himself. See it? Purifies himself as he is pure. So it starts now. It will be culminated then. But everyone who names the name of Christ must work out in himself or herself what God's grace has already worked in. I mean, those words from 1 John are really striking. They, they kind of force us to think in holiness in a way that we aren't used to considering. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So what is the evidence... What is the evidence that someone really believes in Jesus? What is the evidence that someone is really trusting in divine grace and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? What is the evidence that someone is joyfully hoping and trusting and relying in that? I'll tell you what the evidence is. More than anyone else in the church, that person cleanses himself. Paul's words, purifies himself, John's words, cleanses herself, Paul's words, purifies herself, John's words. Is that salvation by works? No. It's the fruit of grace. It's what grace does when it gets into your system. Let's pray.